G'day and welcome to the Head Shepherd Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Ferguson, CEO here at Next Gen Agri. I've worked in livestock research, farming and breeding for over 25 years. I've been very fortunate to see a lot of amazing places and meet a lot of wonderful people throughout that career. I'm reminded every day of just how awesome the livestock industry really is. It really is a great pleasure to bring you the stories and wisdom of the people in the industry via the Head Shepherd Podcast. This podcast is supported by our good friends at Allflex and MSD Animal Health, who are guided by the one mission of the science of healthy and productive animals. For these two companies now combined, they have one of the widest product portfolios in Australasia with a comprehensive lineup from the Cooper's range of animal health products through to the ID and monitoring solutions that, that Allflex are famous for. Their products are all backed up by their exceptional service, and we're thrilled to continue to have their support in bringing you this podcast each week. If I could ask a couple of small favours before we get underway this week, if you could rate this podcast in the app that you're listening to it in, that would be fantastic. Also, if you know someone that you think would enjoy what we do here, please share the show links with them. Finally, if you are listening to this podcast, you're probably a big fan of livestock farming. We're setting up the Next Gen Agri Hub to be the home of livestock farming conversations. Check it out at thehub.nextgenagri.com. Okay, it's time for this week's guest. Welcome back to Head Shepherd. We're changing gears this week. We don't normally have authors on. We normally have farmers, but it's awesome to welcome Michelle Scott Tucker to, to Head Shepherd. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I sold this gig to you by telling you that you'd be talking to heap of sheep tragics, which which you officially now are. Uh, so <laughs> that makes me very happy. Very happy. <laughs> so our audience is yeah across across the globe really, but all yeah pretty much sheep or beef producers and uh, yeah and I, and I think. There's lots of parallels with with your book. So you've written uh, the book Elizabeth MacArthur: A Life at the Edge of the World, which I think is a fantastic story. I haven't actually read the book. My wife has. Um, I've read the. I've skimmed it as best I could over the last week since we booked this interview in, and um, and I've just been interviewing my wife to get the the download as well. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's there's massive parallels with, I guess, still today in agriculture. But um, yeah, I guess tell us. A, Tell us a bit about Elizabeth MacArthur. Well, I'll tell you about how I got started on um, getting interested in Elizabeth, if you like. When I was um, much younger, I was a junior public servant and I got sent out to Outback Queensland and I was working with um, farm women out there and they were very kind to me. I was very green and they impressed upon me the fact that they're not farmers' wives, that they're farmers in their own right and that their economic contribution to the family farm was every bit as important as, as the husband's economic contribution to the farm. And that was a bit of a white bulb moment for me. I thought I'd been a feminist before that, but I went, oh, yeah, that makes perfect <laughs> sense. Um, and then I started wondering why I hadn't been hearing about women in farming. Um, I was interested in history, but as far as I was concerned, an Australian farmer always looked like a man in a hat. Um, and so I went delving back through the history books and very quickly came across Elizabeth MacArthur, um, who established the Australian wool industry, basically, and wondered why I hadn't heard more about her. And as I read her story, it, it was just so interesting and the work she'd done was um, so fascinating and, and um, should be known more about. And so I made this project of lifting her up into the light, I suppose, and so that's why she interests me as, as a woman in a, in a predominantly male industry then as now, but also the same as women now, making a huge contribution um, to the industry as well. So there was those links between the current and the past. Yeah, cool. And, uh, yeah, well, I mean, it's just an amazing story and we'll, we'll try and capture it as best we can. And obviously people need to need to read the book to get the full story, but um, obviously it ended up being quite a labour of love of 12 years of 
chipping high, writing a book. It must have <laughs> must have been uh, a lot of time. And starting from scratch, it would have been, I guess, the detail you go to in the book must have been a hell of a lot of research and had a lot of library, it was, library it was, bashing. It was fun. Um, it was like a knitting project. I'd pick it up and put it down again, and I had young children, and so the book was a place where I could be intellectually alone, if that makes sense. I could carve out a little space for myself um, even when the children were present. Um, but Elizabeth's story begins in, I guess, if you've seen any of those Jane Austen bonnet dramas, you'll know the sort of village that she grew up in, in North Devon. She wasn't a Victorian woman with the big dresses. She was a, a very much a Regency or a, a Georgian woman who married a Wickham instead of a Darcy, really. So she married a soldier and no one in the village liked the soldier. They all thought he was a bit stuck up and, and a bit proud and certainly going nowhere. His name was John MacArthur. And John was in a really awful regiment and, and tried to leave and wasn't able to leave and so instead made the decision to travel to Australia and make his fortune. And Elizabeth made a pretty stupid decision to go with him. Really. She was the only officer's wife to go at that stage. Um, this was in 1790. So the first fleet landed in Australia in 1788. It had come back by, the, by 1790, the first few ships had come back and said, yeah, it's all great. It's going to be fabulous. <laughs> this colony is it's so good. Like they'd been there for five minutes and gone, yeah, we dropped them off. They're all fine. It's all, it's all going They're perfectly loving well. It. Um, loving it. And so the MacArthur's have heard this and gone, oh, okay, let's go to Australia, we'll make our fortune quickly and then we'll come back. Um, at this stage, Elizabeth had a baby in her arms, um, a little boy who was born five months after the wedding. Shocking, I know. <laughs> clearly a love match. Um, and just as she boarded the ship, she found out she was pregnant again. So that's just what you want when you're travelling across the sea on a convict ship to be, have, have a toddler and, and be pregnant again. I'm sure she was absolutely thrilled. Um, and she had a, a torrid journey across the seas. Um, there was a 1,000 convicts spread across three ships. By the time they got to Australia, a third of them had died because they didn't feed them. So it was an early example of government outsourcing and the contractors who ran the ships were given a certain amount of money for each convict who, who was embarked. So they weren't paid any money to get them safely to the other end. And, in fact, it was cheaper if they died along the way because then you could save money on feeding them and you could keep the food and sell it at vast um, profits at the other end. So it was a, a, an absolutely appalling journey um, for Elizabeth as well, even though she wasn't a convict, she was the officer's wife, so she got treated a bit better but not much better. And she lost the baby along the way, so the baby that she was pregnant with was lost while she was crossing the Southern Ocean. She went into premature labour. There were storms. She went into premature labour and the baby lived just for one hour and she buried that little baby at sea. Um, so when they turned up in Sydney Cove, 1790, June 1790, she's sailing into Sydney Harbour, the finest harbour in the world, and she's waiting to see this township that's there waiting for her because it's all fabulous, remember? They heard how fantastic it was in this new colony. And she turned, as they came approach what's now Circular Quay, was then called Sydney Cove, all she sees is this campsite. It's just tents. It's an army campsite, so the tents are in rows. But it's just tents. The, the Marines that come out to meet them, some of them don't have shoes on because they haven't heard from England for two or three years. They've run out of supplies. They're starving because they haven't been able to grow anything in this new colony. Um, they're sailors, remember, sailors and convicts. They don't know anything about growing crops. They've given it their best shot, but it's not going very well. Um, 
and she turns up at this colony and it's just, it's awful. And she must have wondered, what, what on earth have I done? Like I've left everything behind. I've lost so much on the way. Here I am in this horrible colony. There's no one for her to talk to. She's the only woman of rank there. There are convict women there, but because of social constraints, she can't possibly speak with them. So for the next three years, she's pretty lonely, actually. And for three years, she's stuck in this camp. It's not like she gets there and starts farming right away. She's stuck in this camp doing nothing, um, talking to the same people day in, day out. There's only like maybe 2,000 people there and only a handful of officers for her to talk to. But that said, given that she was the only educated woman in the colony, she was extraordinarily popular with the officers. <laughs> they all loved her very much and would visit her every day and bring her little gifts and, and made it as pleasant for her as they could. And it wasn't until 1793 that the MacArthur's actually got their land grant, their first land grant of 100 acres um, upriver at the place that's now called Parramatta. Um, and the Parramatta River flows into Sydney Harbour. So to get there, you'd go by boat up the harbour, up the river, um, to this little place at Parramatta. And it's worth pointing out now that Elizabeth MacArthur, or Elizabeth Veal as she was originally, was a farmer's daughter. Um, not a posh farmer's daughter, a working farmer's daughter. And the farm that she was born on in Devon, um, just on the banks of the Tamar River, was about 100 acres. Um, it was situated fairly close to a little village called Bridge Rural, um, and the town was on a hill above the village. The house was on a hill above the village. And I know this because I went to Bridge Rural and I visited this farm and they served me the best afternoon tea of my life. <laughs> Devonshire tea, of course, it was scones. Um, and it's still a working farm to this day. And it's the sort of farmhouse where you step out into the farmyard. It's, it's not fancy or posh in any sort of way. So Elizabeth had some expertise in farming. Her husband, John, had none. He was the son of a shopkeeper. Um, and he was only a gentleman by, because he bought a, a commission in the army. That's the only reason he was any sort of gentleman. But he was very... Um, about his honour and about being called a gentleman because it was so precarious. So they got their 100 acres on the Parramatta River and, and they set it up to look like the farm that Elizabeth had been born in. It was, they put their house about a kilometre back from the river on a rise near a, a small creek and you could walk into the village of Parramatta from their place. It wasn't remote. Um, and the garrison was situated next door, basically. So it was a really good location. And over the next five or ten years, they turned it into a little... Um, mixed farm, I guess. They grew, um, planted fruit trees that had lots of different poultry and fowl, uh, lots of pigs for meat for, the, for them and for the workers, some sheep at that stage and some cattle, but there weren't many in the colony yet. Obviously, they were all having to come in on ships, so the numbers of these things weren't great. Um, and in the very early days, one of the officers gifted Elizabeth a cow, and that was a gift beyond price because she had small children by then and, and it was she couldn't have been more thrilled to get this, this wonderful gift of a cow that was very precious to her. Um, and the MacArthur's also diversified. So they ran, as well as running the farming enterprises, they had various shipping, um, what would you call it, entrepreneurial things going on. They had ships running in the South Seas um, doing business there. And, of course, John was an army officer, so he was getting his income through that as well. Um, and he did a few things on the side like selling rum um, illegally. <laughs> he, was, he was also the regimental paymaster for a while, so that means you can skim money, profits off the top of the, of the money. That was just the done thing then. So they had diversified their income. Um, and people were wondering how John was doing so well and no one seemed to notice that he had this fabulous wife at home who actually knew what she was doing um, and could, could make things happen. And not on her own, obviously. They had convict staff. 
things got interesting in about 1801. John MacArthur was a difficult man um, and he got into a duel with his commanding officer, as you do. The whole pistols at dawn, 20 paces, you know, absolutely ridiculous. Um, and he shot his commanding officer in the shoulder, which is not a career-enhancing move. <laughs> so, <laughs> didn't kill him, you know, bad. <laughs> still bad. Yeah, yeah still bad. Yeah. Um, yeah. The governor was less than pleased and so uh, they both got sent back to England to be court-martialed, basically just so the governor could get them out of their hair, just, you know, stop bothering me, go to England, off you go. And so John got sent back to England and Elizabeth was left at home alone to manage the properties. Now, by then they'd taken their 100 acres and consolidated and by the time John left they had a couple of thousand acres on, on various properties that they'd got. Um, John bought a farm just before he left the country just to give Elizabeth more to do. So <laughs> he left. Um, he took two of their children, two of their older children with him to go to school in England and left Elizabeth at home with three little ones, um, sort of toddlers and primary school age kids several thousand acres of property, a couple of thousand sheep, and said, off you go, you run this, <laughs> I'm off to England. <laughs> and she's like, okay, this is great. And so over the next four years, that's exactly what she did. She just she ran the properties. Um, she had a good, close working relationship with the local um, Baramadigal people who helped her out and they would come and go from the farm quite easily and, and, and she had a, a good working relationship with them. That would change later when money got involved, but in the early days um, she was quite close with the local people. Um, and she ran the farms on her own without too much help from the convicts. She was always needed more convict labour, but there was always a shortage of convict labour. They had no fences, remember, so they needed shepherds um, to, to keep the livestock um, under control, I suppose, to bring them in each night and then to let them graze during the day. Um, but she was beginning, by the time of several years had passed, she was beginning to have to cull because they didn't have enough staff to um, to look after the sheep. In the meantime, John's in England getting court-martialed, but he could talk now, John. And so he got out of the court-martial um, and went around all the um, wool manufacturers and spoke to them about what they were doing. Remember, this is the time of the Napoleonic Wars and also the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, and so there's these... Uh, woolen mills in England that desperately needed wool but weren't able to get as much from the continent anymore because of the wars going on um, in Europe. So John's walking around going, I'm your man. Yep, pick me. I'll, I'll give you all the wool that you need. No worries at all, despite having never sent a commercial quantity of wool overseas ever. Um, but he's like, yep, yep, I can do this. It's all good. And he went and spoke to Joseph Banks, who didn't like him very much, and said, no, I'm not going to help you. And then um, he went to a sale of sheep. So the King of England had a small flock of merino sheep. At this stage, um, I'll just go into the history of the merino for you because I know way too much about the history of the merino sheep. <laughs> this, but, you, you, our listeners all love it. So I know. Yeah. I know. This is yeah. where the sheep tragics are making me happy and they'll pick me up on the things I got wrong, I'm sure. <laughs> so the merino sheep had been bred in Spain. Merino is a Spanish word and they'd been bred in Spain since medieval times. So hot, dry climate, these sturdy little sheep, and they didn't, don't look like the modern Australian merino at this stage. They're just a very small sheep, a full-size rams, maybe 45 kilos, um, maybe a couple of kilos of fleece, but they're a sturdy sheep with a really nice quality of wool. Spain was very jealous of their sheep, and so they, for a long time they forbid any export of the sheep. They wanted to maintain their intellectual property and maintain that monopoly on, on their fine wool. 
And so it was very difficult to get Moreno wool except from Spain. But, of course, that sort of thing over time becomes unenforceable and sheep were getting smuggled out or gifted away. And it turns out that the King of England had a small flock of Merino sheep that he'd sort of got by hook or by crook um, from, from the colony and Banks was looking after this flock of prime Merinos for the king. And they, had, they were doing so well that there was a sale of surplus sheep. And so John MacArthur rocks up to the sale of surplus sheep and, and buys a dozen um, rams and ewes for himself. And Banks says, well, you can't export them overseas. It's illegal. You can't do it. And John typically just bought them anyway and worried about it later. Used his contacts to get the laws changed so that he could get dispensation to take his sheep back home. Um, and he turns up in Australia in 1805 in a ship, in a ship very modestly called the Argus. Um, he's got this dozen uh, merino sheep on board. Um, and more importantly, he's got a letter from the king giving him a land grant of 5,000 acres, which was the biggest land grant anyone had been offered to date. It was in prime land um, just south of, of Sydney Cove in what's now called Camden. Um, and basically the governor had sent him overseas to get rid of him and he's come back. Instead of coming back with his tail between his legs, he's come back covered in glory um, <laughs> with all these fantastic sheep and with, with this, you know, 5,000 acre land grant. And the governor's sort of had to suck it all up and go, yeah, great, and welcomed him back and buried the hatchet in a shallow grave, um, pretended <laughs> to get on. Um, so Elizabeth's pleased to see him back, but now there's a whole lot of work to do. And instead of doing the work, John instead instigates a military coup. Um, in 1808, John was behind the, the overthrow of Governor Bly. Um, it's often called the Rum Rebellion. Um, Bly, yes, is the same Bly that was involved in mutiny on the bounty. After that mutiny, the government had tried to get rid of him, so they'd sent him out to Australia to become the governor out here. And that didn't go so well because there was another mutiny, basically, um, <laughs> led by John, one John MacArthur, um, and Bly was arrested. Um, it was all pretty, uh, it was quite a bloodless coup, so it wasn't terrible. But, of course, long story short, John gets sent overseas again to be tried, this time for treason, because, you know, the government doesn't like it when you overthrow the government. Um <laughs> So he's gone back over. So after only being home for three or four years, he's sent back to England again. And this time he's away for 12 years. So in total, Elizabeth has run the family farms by herself for a total of 17 years. And this second time, she's got a much bigger property. She's got the 5,000 acres down at Camden as well that she's running. And this is when she's really um, working to bring the sheep up. It wasn't good years, they were drought years. She had to work really, really hard um, to, to make things happen. And it was during this period that she sent the first commercial quantities of wool to England, um, to where John was in England, who could then um, sell the wool on. And she started doing that. And, and we're talking about hand clipping the wool, um, hand packing it in presses that they sort of had to cobble together from whatever materials they had to hand. Remember, the colony is not even 20 years old at this stage. It doesn't have a whole lot of manufacturing going on. They, they do what they can to get by. The wool is dirty, so instead of washing the wool, they wash the sheep um, and the sheep all get put through the river and washed before they get shorn. Um, some convicts standing up to his chest in the water, you know, washing the sheep and they come out the other side. So there's this huge process that she has to oversee and then she sends the wool overseas and John writes letters back to her going, the wool's a bit dirty, could you make it a bit cleaner? <laughs> it's got bits in it. <laughs> She's like, really? Are you kidding me? <laughs> like, I don't think so. I'll shove your wool somewhere. Yeah, exactly right. 
So she's running these things. John very helpfully sends back um, ships full of products for her to sell, so she has to add that onto the things that she's doing as well. She's got kids at home. She's raising them. She's doing all these remarkable things at once. Um, but, but it's beginning to be successful. And by the time John is allowed to come back to the country um, and it's the 1820s by now, she's set that foundation so that when John comes back, it's all really easy. And by then they've got two sons who have grown up, who are young men sort of in their late teens, early 20s, and they take on the family farm business in Australia. There's another son in England who's a lawyer, so he works as their agent in England to sell the wool over there. Um, and so it's very much a family business and, and they're not an overnight success. We're 30 years on now. It's, it's Elizabeth building up the foundations. It's John in England talking the talk. It's the sons now taking over the family farm. And the sons are always very respectful of their mother. They keep going to her for advice. They get it that she's smart, that she's, she's switched on. She steps back from overtly running the family business the family business, but she's really still there in advising them and, and, and suggesting that they do. Um, John takes advantage of all this and, and has a great time, but, in fact, he, he slips into madness and, and into psychosis, actually, and, and in hindsight it's probably fair to say that he might have been bipolar. Um, it's hard to diagnose 200 years in the past, but it, he's very erratic. He's prone to mood, spread, mood swings. And by the 1830s, he's, he's declared in, in, the, in the words of the time, he's declared insane um, and the family basically locks him up at home and, and has to take care of him. And so that's all part of Elizabeth's burden as well of, of dealing with that and dealing with John and dealing with the embarrassment of John going out and, and, and being psychotic um, and trying to deal with him at home. And, and it's a strain on her and a strain on her marriage and that begins to show and she stops going out so much, she stops socialising so much. The sons are very, it's a very, it becomes a very insular family um, and running this farm. They become renowned as, as the sheep um, people in Australia. When new colonists come to Australia, they all go and talk to the MacArthurs. Um, people coming to the colony who want to buy a small flock to start on their own will buy it from the MacArthurs and, and buy um, a ram to several rams to, to start their flocks um, and they're, they're considered part of the elite of the colony. But, again, if you look at their sheep, they're not that special. They're still not looking like the Australian pepper merinos. They're still these little scrubby little sheep. The MacArthurs don't actually know about genetics um, and don't understand about genetics at that stage, so the, the breeding's a bit, bit patchy on these sheep. And people in later times, you get old men who are looking back who knew the MacArthur sheep when they were children and go, they weren't actually all that good, but that was the best that the colony had at the time. Um, and to this day there's a small flock of um, MacArthur sheep that are run at the Elizabeth MacArthur Institute um, in New South Wales and they've got a small flock of these sheep that they've sort of kept pure, I presume, by inbreeding to, to keep them. And they are just a little scruffy-looking sheep. <laughs> they are indeed. <laughs> yeah, they're not, they're not special, even to my eye, and I'm, I'm not a sheep. I didn't sign that business. Um, and I'm not an expert in sheep. But they just look like a little ordinary sheep to me. They don't look like a big, beautiful marine. I've got some old uh, old photos somewhere, which I think was the Camden Marinos. This, I've got, I'll find those prints. They'll, they'll be on the social media with this podcast. But we'll, Fantastic. Yeah. So, yep. so that's Elizabeth's story, really. She and there's more to it. She she was a friend of every governor in Australia, right from Governor Philip right through to the 1850s. She lived into her old age. 
Um, she was a player in the political, um, the first 60 years of a colony. She was definitely a political player. And in her old age, she'd go and sit on South Head in Sydney Harbour and just sit up there and watch the ships go in and out of the harbour and, and see all the busyness. And remember, she's seen that harbour empty. She's seen that harbour empty of ships and no one knowing whether another ship was going to turn up or not, whether they were <laughs> yeah. just stuck there on the edge of the world and, and England had forgotten about them. Um, yeah. and, and she's helped build, with her input, helped to build this that colony from where it was into something kind of extraordinary. And so I, I really do wish that Elizabeth MacArthur was better known. She's quite well known in New South Wales but not so much around the rest of the world. It was John MacArthur who was on the $2 note, not Elizabeth. But um, yeah. I think it really was her that, that made the difference, not not John so much. Yeah, it's a hell of a story and I guess it's, um, I guess she really was Australia's first, well, definitely was Australia's first woman farmer, but but it sounds like at the time there was also others, other other women that were in similar sort of, whether you call it predicament or opportunities. That- yeah, it, it's really true. They, I mean, we tend to focus, Australian history has for a long time, it's changing now, has been about men at work um, and about white men at work. So you get the explorers, men at work, um, the, the army officers and the naval people like Captain Cook, well, he's a man at work. Um, and you get the story of the male farmer and often it's the lone male farmer you know, out on his own, doing it by himself um, against the environment. Um, but, in fact, it's not true. And all through the history books I was quite surprised to find how many women were out there farming, either on their own or as, um, with their partners or sometimes as widows if, if their partner had left or, you know, if their partner had just gone. There was plenty of women out there, still a minority in terms of numbers, but enough that it wasn't surprising. So in the officers' diaries, they'll just mention casually, oh, no, I went and had tea with Mrs such-and-such on her farm at at, at blah, blah, and and it wasn't unusual in the way that it wouldn't be unusual now to be um, a woman farmer. Again, less than 50%, but still um, plenty of them out there doing this work. But I I think that hasn't been acknowledged. And and it's my understanding that even on the Australian census, it wasn't until the 1990s that a woman was able to tick farmer as an op- as an occupation um, because it was just a shame yeah. that a woman couldn't be a farmer, which, is, of course, is a nonsense. And, and before 1788, of course, the local women were um, managing the landscape and growing um, things to eat and, and feeding their families as well. So there's been women farming and cultivating this country for 60,000 years. Yeah, and I was careful in my notes. I had first European woman farmer and... And exactly right. Thank you. Uh, that. Miss, miss that, miss that out. But yeah, thanks for for clarifying that. The um, yeah, so a massive proportion of the success of the wool industry that I now have a career in, and um, it's yeah, it's amazing to think of the, well, I guess the the absolute dedication that just to, uh, that they showed to to stick it out, and and you imagine it wouldn't have taken too many turns to the turns the other way for it all to, all to fall to pieces without someone like Elizabeth there. And I guess maybe it would eventually would have worked, but obviously she was foundational for the, for the whole setup. I think so. And, and I think it was part of their strategy of diversification was that it was the sheep who, who worked out, but they were also selling horses. They had cattle. As I said, they had these industries in the South Sea. They were involved in sealing and whaling. Any one of those industries could have been the one that took off um, and it just happened to be the sheep that, that became the most profitable for them because of that confluence of events of the Industrial Revolution, of the war in Europe, 
Um, there was a market there for the wool that might not have been there otherwise. They weren't the only sheep farmers and they weren't even the first sheep farmers. Um, a Lieutenant Waterhouse was the first person to bring merinos over from the Cape. Um, there were other people doing it at the same time. But because the MacArthur's had this family arrangement going on, they were able to benefit from it the most, I guess. They had people in England, they had, you know, big farms back in Australia. They, they had the economies of scale. That, that some of the other um, farmers didn't have at that stage. Yeah, and it, I mean, it's probably not that different still today, but they very much are dependent in those days who you knew and Definitely. and how you treated them, and and uh, and I guess that still plays out a bit. There's still boys clubs around the place, but the um, but that was very critical back then. Obviously, who you keeping the governor sweet? Probably not shooting your commanding officer. Could be good, <laughs> a good thing to avoid, but. In the very early days, John was basically running the colony, which meant that he could get labour and he could assign himself convicts um, and, and assign himself the best convicts, the ones who actually knew what they were doing. Um, because, remember, most of the convicts are from the slums of London. They're not skilled in any way um, to work farms or to work in houses or to do any sort of labour. You've got to skill them up yourself. Um, so he was able to cherry-pick to a certain degree to get in the early days to get the staff that he needed and to get the personnel that he needed. Um, but I think mm. he was also quite personable when he wasn't being awful. <laughs> like you either loved him or hated yeah. him. Um, and the people who worked for him were treated very well. Um, so in that sense he was a good manager and Elizabeth was a good manager. Um, and anyone who's managed people knows it's, it's not an easy task. But the, the servants and, and people who worked for the MacArthur's always spoke very highly of them. In later years, they'd, um, the MacArthur's would travel around Europe and get whole families to migrate, um, German families, for instance, and, and get, you know, 20 or 30 people and, and um, assist them to migrate to Australia and, and offer them a, a job on a, on a MacArthur family farm. So in, in doing that, the MacArthur's were the first to grow Riesling wines in Australia because they brought the German winemakers over. So that was another part of the diversification, they were growing wines and, and those sorts of things. So they were very canny managers as well as being um, skilled farmers. I think I read that, was it John or one of the sons anyway, started AACO, which most most Australian listeners would know of AACO, um, but it was set up as a final, was meant to be a final production enterprise and obviously now is known for beef cattle, but but I think he was instrumental in kicking kicking AACO as well. He was, he was one of the. He and his sons were some of the first directors of that company. At one stage, John was managing it as well. Um, they had a, a, a small outpost uh, further up the coast from Sydney. By then, he was well into his psychosis, so it didn't all go smoothly for poor old John at that stage, um, and, and it was a difficult time anyway. But, yeah, so that, that company that John was a director of and established of is still here, what, nearly 200 years later, is, is kind of amazing, really, that it, it has that yeah. longevity. Um, and the MacArthur's still live on that family farm down in Camden, the one that John got the 5,000 acres for. Um, descendants of the MacArthur's still live there. They're still farming it. Um, they moved uh, after Elizabeth died. They sort of moved into dairying more than sheep. Um, they, they, it was just more effective in Camden to run dairy than, than sheep. But Elizabeth grand, Elizabeth's granddaughter was also a fabulous farmer and won prizes for being a, a, an important dairy farmer. So clearly there was something in the blood about MacArthur's and being good at farming. Indeed. And 
I guess there's lots of parallels with today, loneliness, hardship, uh, invisible women. One of the other ones that's that's interesting is failed succession. So it's still today we have massive problems with succession in farming, and yet, and it seemed like it was the first sort of a bit of a screw up where the eldest son was meant to get the, the lion's share and and end up putting a fair bit of pressure on the family. Yeah, that's right. So the MacArthur's had nine children in total, or Elizabeth had nine um, children. Two of them died in infancy and seven of them grew to adulthood. Um, and of those, there were four sons. The eldest son joined the army. He tried farming and didn't like it um, and found it difficult to get on with his dad. So he he joined the army and became an officer and lived most of his life overseas and had quite a difficult relationship with his father, I think. Um, the second son became a lawyer and he was the one who was the agent for the family um, in England. He left Australia when he was seven years old. Elizabeth sent him off to school when he was seven years old and she never saw him again because he, he grew up to an adult and became a lawyer but never came back to Australia and Elizabeth never managed to visit back to England again. So they wrote and they corresponded but she never saw him again and he died when he was 32 um, when Elizabeth was still alive. And so... He's died as an adult and she hasn't seen him since he was a little boy, which is just absolutely heartbreaking. Mm. I mean, I've, oh, yeah. I've got kids and I send them with their dad down the shops and, I, you know, you worry about them in the car for the five minutes that they're away. <laughs> and she's put on a boat. Yeah, yeah, on a boat to the other side of the world. So um, so the second son was, was helpful in that he was an agent, um, but he didn't run the farm. It was the two younger sons who loved the farm and who loved um living in New South Wales and who were some of the first Australians to call themselves native-born Australians and call themselves Australians. They were proud to be so. It was those two younger sons who were always very close who went back to New South Wales and who took on the running of the family farm um, and who were very good at it, as it happened. But none of them had sons. One of them didn't marry um, and the the one who did marry only had a, only just had a daughter, had one child, had a daughter. <laughs> Um, so succession was a problem in those days when you, you t- wouldn't think you'd pass it on to the daughter. But in the end, um, all, all the farms went to that one daughter. As the uncles died off, all their money, all their funding went to that one daughter. Um, and she picked up, her name was Elizabeth, of course. Everyone in those days was called Elizabeth, which made it really difficult <laughs> to write the book because there's so many Elizabeths. <laughs> it was tricky. Eliza, <laughs> Beth. <laughs> but the granddaughter was Elizabeth as well and, and she was the one who became the, the prized dairy farmer and, and who um, very cannily then, rather than running it as a family farm, set up a company, um, a MacArthur company, and, and ran it in a much more structured and, and um, legally interesting way so to, to, to the benefit of the family. Um, she had eight children as well and so then the farm got dispersed um, through there. So the MacArthur family line continues but it continues through that female line and so members of the family, um, the, the granddaughter's married name was Onslow, um, but members of the family by deed poll have, have taken on that MacArthur name again to, to have those links back to, to John and Elizabeth MacArthur, where they were originally from. Now, some of them, today's um, family members are lovely. I, I, I get on with them and, and they're terrific. Some of the Elizabeth MacArthur's sons and grandchildren were a bit dismayed by how not posh Elizabeth and John were and, and were hoping that they'd have more of a prestigious family tree and so they talked it up a little bit. But Elizabeth MacArthur herself was never posh. She was a Devon woman. As soon as she opened her mouth, you'd know that she wasn't posh. 
Um, John MacArthur liked to think he was a gentleman and a man of honour, but he kind of wasn't. So this is just an ordinary farming family that have done well. Um, they're not gentry. They're not um, part of high society. Later they had lots of money, so within Australia they, they were part of the, the top echelon and they had access to politicians and those sorts of things. Um, but there's no sense of, of Elizabeth MacArthur ever putting on airs or, or trying to be something that she wasn't. She was just a Devon woman trying to do the best by her family. And the house that she lived in is called Elizabeth Farm and it still exists. It's in Parramatta. It's a, um, a museum place now. You can go and visit it for the day and it's surrounded by the suburbs of Parramatta now. It's on a couple of acres now. And it's this beautiful house you can go in and it's a living museum. Um, they don't have any of the original furniture. They've got um, copies of the furniture. So if you want to sit on the bed, you can sit on the bed. If you want to have a cup of tea in the kitchen, you can have a cup of tea in the kitchen or read a book on the, on the front veranda. It's very beautiful. Um, but that house that is there now is the extension that John built in his old age. The house that Elizabeth lived in for nearly 30 years was just a four-bedroom cottage um, with kitchens in separate outbuildings out the back and, and laundries and things in separate outbuildings. So she was never... She didn't want all the trappings of wealth. She wasn't interested in the trappings of wealth. Her children were more interested in that and her grandchildren were more interested in that. But for her, it was about doing the work. And even as an old lady, um, she used to like going down to watch the shearing and, and make sure that it was all, you know, she, if she missed the shearing, it would all be a bit sad for her. So, so she was very much involved at that level rather than um, wanting something that she couldn't have. Yeah, no, that's such a cool story and we won't dwell on it, but the brutality that she witnessed in those early days was like nothing short of horrendous. Like it was pretty regular floggings and obviously, uh, yeah, the the set, settlers tackling the, the Indigenous people and it was yeah, actually a pretty horrendous time that those it, first it, 10, it 15, really 20 years. Or- it was ghastly and, and you're right about the floggings of the, of the convicts and the local people... Um, the local Aboriginal people would watch those floggings in horror and couldn't understand what was going on. And, and, and there's a meeting of two worldviews that were so completely alien to one another um, that, that they just couldn't understand one another. And in those earliest days, they tried. I mean, Elizabeth would have um, Aboriginal women would come and had just given birth and would come and show Elizabeth their babies and, and they'd chat and they'd, they'd get on and, and it was nice. But as Elizabeth's empire expanded and as their holdings expanded as they pushed out to Camden and beyond and large sums of money began to be involved then of course the local Aboriginal people started pushing back they started realizing that these guests aren't going to go away and they're not going to treat us well and so they started pushing back there were murders and killings on both sides convicts would go out and kill Aboriginal people Aboriginal people would kill convicts in reprisal there was all sorts of things going on beyond the frontier that no one quite knew about um, and people were getting killed. And, and at that stage when money got involved, Elizabeth's attitude's hardened and it's pretty awful to watch actually. She starts calling the Aboriginal people, you know, savages and, and because her own shepherds are getting killed and, and that relationship completely breaks down. And in the 1820s there's a massacre near where Elizabeth lived called the Appen Massacre where um, a clan of Aborigines would basically run off a cliff. Um, the soldiers... Um, invaded the campsite in the dark and ran a bunch of Aboriginal people off the cliff. Um, and after that, the Aboriginal people kind of stopped 
in, in that area, stop fighting back so hard because you would, wouldn't you? And so they they, hmm. they left, they dispersed. And when you see these words in the history books about Aboriginal people leaving or being dispersed or or just magically melting away somehow, they're not there anymore, you have to read that with a fairly stern eye and realise that the reason they're being dispersed, the reason they're leaving is because they're being killed. They're being raped hmm. and killed and murdered um, or enslaved or having their children taken away and putting the orphans home. This stuff all started really early and the MacArthur's were very much, very much part of that process of dispossession um, and forcing people to, to leave their country. And, and we shouldn't forget that that's part of this, you know, you can have the glorious pioneering story, the white woman's triumph as, as, as a pioneer of the Australian wool industry. Yes, that's true. It's also true that she was complicit in some of the atrocities that, that took place in that, that early settlement. Yeah, and very important that all of history gets told, not, not just the bit that's convenient. I think yeah. I think that's absolutely right. It's about truth-telling. It's If we can be proud of mm. the past as we are, I don't know, of Gallipoli veterans and stuff and we take pride in their achievements, we can also be ashamed of the past. The, the, the two yeah. um, go side go go hand in hand, I think. Yeah, it's a, it's a great story, and yeah, we really appreciate you taking the time to to share it with with our sheep tragic listeners. The um, obviously you've written. Uh, I guess it will make sure we put in the show notes how to access this book, but it's, I'm assuming it's available at all all places books are sold. All good bookstores, definitely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So we'll um, we'll make sure that. Um, that and I'm, all- I'm, I'm very happy to answer questions from any of your listeners. If you go to my website at michellescotttucker.com. Um, you'll see how to contact me there. Usually when I give talks about this book, I get questions at the end and someone always asks me a question about the sheep and, and I don't know that much about the sheep and they'll say, my ancestor such and such bred this sheep from such and such and they bought it from blah, blah. Do you know about that? Like, Sorry, no clue. <laughs> Did Bruce McCartney involved? Then no. <laughs> Having given me the disclaimer that you know nothing about sheep, I reckon you did a pretty good job. You seem to have you, you got the merino merino history well and truly down pat. Now, I'll, I'll give you a little clue. When you read through the book, you'll see that I never say at what point they undertook the shearing, like when in the year, because the MacArthur's haven't recorded when in the year they did the shearing, and I never found out when it was. I couldn't, <laughs> and I couldn't work it out when it was, so I just <laughs> gloss over that. Just, just whenever it shearing. was. It probably wasn't. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's how they got the wall. Yeah. The, um, <laughs> And I imagine it would be pretty random. I can't imagine they were sticking to too tight of a calendar. Well, you couldn't have because it would be so weather-influenced. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. It's just tricky. And and things like they're using hand shears. Um, if the hand shears got broken, there's not a replacement. Like there's not a shop where you could go to buy more hand shears. That's it. Yes, there's this many in the colony <laughs> and that's all. Um, yeah. So it was, it was really logistically quite difficult. Yeah. Well, my history is appalling, but um, I wasn't aware how how much to and fro there was. Even in those early days, I sort of assumed that everyone got dumped off and there was only one-way ships, but obviously there was a, there was a bit of trade back and forth. But There, there was ships but, coming in and out in the very first couple of – for the first two years there was none. So the first fleet arrived and then there was no ship, no word of anything for two years. So for two years they didn't know if they'd been forgotten or not, which was, you know, Pretty intense, really. Um, and then after the the second fleet arrived in 1790, there were more ships started coming through then. But it was still, for the next 10 or 20 years, it was still pretty much, um, it was remote. 
I think it's fair to say it was remote. And anything that if you needed new shoes, if there, there weren't necessarily cobblers in the colony, you had to buy it off the ships. The, there was it was hard to get anything that you needed, really. So mm. it was it was quite tricky. It's easy to look back in hindsight and think, oh no, that was you know that was too easy. Yeah. it was difficult. Yeah, no, there's nothing nothing too easy about any of those days. But anyway. But, uh, yeah, no, thanks very much for your time. You've obviously written another book or another two books, one book at least. I've, I've written one more. So my the book that I've just released in the last couple of months, um, I worked with a Torres Strait Islander to write his memoir. Um, that book's called So Far So Good and it's the memoir of Aaron Faso. Um, he's an actor, a film and television producer um, and a very proud Torres Strait Islander and, and it's his story. And so that was it's quite different from the Elizabeth MacArthur book. I'm still writing about other people's lives. Um but it, that was quite an adventure writing that book and, and Aaron's not afraid to do the emotional deep dive. So that was really interesting. But the nice link is that um, Aaron runs his own film and television production company and we were chatting the other day and he's going, I should option your book about the wool industry. I'm going, yes, yes, you should. <laughs> he's going, what, what would, we'll do a drama series, six-part drama series. What do we have to say? And is it about the wool industry? I'm going, no, no, mate. It'll be about that frontier conflict and about, uh, you know, having yeah. an Indigenous film producer do that film about that frontier conflict, about a, a really likeable white woman, but her, that complexity of her relationship with um, the local Aboriginal people mm. would be really, really interesting. So fingers crossed that one day Aaron gets that um, that film up and going and, and we make that into a, into a real-life thing. Yeah, no, awesome. Thanks so much, Michelle. You've been very generous with your time. Really appreciate that. And uh, yeah, it's I've learnt more about Australian history than I've they managed to teach me at school. So I really appreciate that. And uh, and look forward to. I actually will sit down and read this book properly now. But um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, you don't have to. <laughs> <but> <laughs> I feel like, I feel like I work in the wool industry and talk a lot about it. I probably should understand where it started. Yeah. No, it's all good. Thank yeah. you very much for having me. It's been absolute delight speaking to you and um, I'm, as I said, I'm just thrilled to be able to talk to Sheep Tragics in my favourite <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Head Shepherd Podcast. If you enjoy listening in each week, please take a moment to subscribe or even give us a review. That would be fantastic. And if you do get a moment to share it with your networks, we'd also love that so that we can share these great stories with more people. Thanks again to our friends at Allflex for sponsoring this episode. Allflex are wonderful supporters of the Australian and New Zealand livestock industries. Combined now with MSD Animal Health, they offer one of New Zealand and Australia's largest livestock product portfolios, focused on animal health and management, all backed up by that exceptional service. We really do enjoy our long-term association with Allflex and thank them very much for, for again supporting us with bringing this podcast to you.